This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'm also very grateful uh, for this invitation. Um, I think it's, I, I haven't been this excited about death for, for a long time. <laughs> So just to set the context of my talk a little bit, you'll remember when Dora uh, presented the baboon slides and the various questions that we might ask of those baboons um, with respect to their understanding of death. What I'll be telling you, I think, in part today is that the answer to many of those questions with respect to children at a fairly young age is yes, that they, they have an understanding But then I'll go on to say more about how that understanding might be displaced or amplified um, by the notions of afterlife or religion that their particular culture um, presents to them. So that's the the gist of the presentation. Uh, Some acknowledgments here. Uh, My good colleague Rita Astuti, whom you'll be hearing more from this afternoon, Uh, Marta Gimenez, with whom I did some research in Spain, three colleagues at the University of Texas. I'll mention them later when I talk about some some work in Vanuatu. So, as I've said, children probably acquire, and certainly by the age of seven or eight, have acquired um, what we might think of as a biological theory of death. That's to say they seem to understand that death is a terminal point for all mental and bodily processes. And indeed, children of this age, seven, eight, nine, it varies a little bit from child to child, also seem to understand the universality of death, that it applies to everybody, that it's irreversible. And it's also true that they understand something of the mechanics of death. That's to say that the, the body is a, is a machine, that there are various parts, invisible parts, lungs, heart, and so forth, which have to be coordinated. And when those parts break down, then death is inevitable with various uh, consequences. At the same time, children will encounter um, uh, a religious account or a supernatural account. And part of what I want to discuss, as I mentioned a moment ago, is the relationship in the child's mind between these two different accounts. So, in order to explore that question of the relationship between the two accounts, we, that's to say myself and Marta Gimenez, tested children um, of five years of age, sorry, seven years of age and uh, 11 years of age in Spain. I mentioned Spain advisedly in some sense because, of course, these children were therefore growing up in a particular religious culture. The children were not just quizzed about their, as it were, immediate or biological conception of death, but we tried to prompt uh, their religious conception as well. And we did this, therefore, in the context of two different stories. One about the deaths of a grandparent, and at the end of the story, the, the, the grandchild is visited by a doctor, and the other also about the death of a grandparent, but in this story, the, the grandchild who's lost their grandparent is visited by a priest. So I'll just show you 
those two stories. As you can see toward the end here, the doctor came to talk to Juan about what had happened, and he said to Juan, your grandfather is dead now. You can see that there's no hint in this story of an afterlife or there are no religious cues. The second story, the priest story, is fairly similar. That's to say, death of a grandparent who's been ill, goes to the hospital. But as you can see at the end of the story, Marta, uh, the protagonist, is visited by a priest rather than by a doctor who explains what, what has happened and puts to Marta the claim that her grandmother is now with God. So that each child listened to both of these stories and after each story we would ask about the functioning of various processes. Sometimes we asked about bodily processes, for example, have his eyes stopped working? And sometimes we asked about mental processes, can he still see? And as in this case, we try to choose pairings, that's to say where we would focus in on a bodily organ and an accompanying uh, mental process. We couldn't always do that, but roughly speaking, that was, that was our goal. So ultimately, the children answered um, about 14 questions, seven about the functioning of the body, seven about the functioning of the mind. The children gave their reply. They would either say this process was continuing or not. And then we would ask them to offer an explanation of why it had stopped or, conversely, why the process was continuing. And we found that we could um, allocate children's answers to three different um, categories, religious, biological, and a more equivocal set of replies. So let's just present the way in which we score children for each of those categories. So religious answers, well, in this case, the child would claim that a given process continues, so yes, he can still see. And then they, when we'd say, well, how is that? They would supply a religious explanation. In heaven, everything can work, even if she is dead, the soul keeps working and so forth. So you can see very clearly um, in, this, in these cases uh, references to religious notions, heaven, the soul, and so forth. Now if we turn to the biological answers, here the child claims that the process has stopped, and as you can see, they're pretty blunt about why it stopped. Um, he's been eaten by worms, he has no body, he's just bones. If he's dead, nothing can work. And then finally, no credit answers. These were replies where the child either didn't offer an explanation or if they did so, it didn't seem to fit in with the judgment that they'd made about the, the process working or not working. So what I'm going to do next is to show you um, the replies for the seven-year-olds. And uh, just to give you a heads up, um, the uh, biological answers are black. I mean, the bars are black. The religious answers are white. And in between, you'll see some gray for equivocal, so to speak. More than that, I'll show you the extent to which the child offers religious replies or biological replies or equivocal replies with respect to those two story settings. Remember the priest story and the doctor story and also within those two stories for um, 
mental processes versus bodily processes. So here's, a, as I say, an overview of the seven-year-old. And you can see it's fairly black. That's to say, most of the, most of the time, the children are giving biologically-oriented answers. And if you look at the left-hand side of the figure where I've charted replies for the doctor stories, whether it be about the body or the mind, you can see that um, biology is dominating. But if you shift over to the two right-hand columns, you see that religion is beginning to um, get a look in, so to speak, more religious replies, and the proportion of biological answers is declining. So in other words, when you present the same child, or, uh, well, essentially the same child, yes, um, um, a story with some religious cues, they pick up on those cues and they start to interpret the, the death in a different uh, context or in a different fashion. So that's the picture for the seven-year-olds. Now we can ask what we will, might find with the, um, with the older children, with the 11-year-olds, and the extent to which um, biology might, so to speak, consolidate itself or religion might consolidate itself, uh, or there might be some competition between these two modes. And here's what we find. You can see that religion is um, predominating, especially when we've given the child, as you see in the two right-hand columns, those afterlife cues. So if the priest is introduced, whether the child is asked about the body or the mind, there's a lot of religious talk in their replies and, and justifications. So the next step that we took was to ask, given that we had presented each child with two stories, to ask how consistent any individual child um, might be across those two stories, and indeed across essentially the 28 questions that we had asked them. So at one extreme, a given child might be consistently biological in their answer. They might assume that death is terminal and that's that, no matter what the process and no matter what the story context. Conversely, they might be consistently religious in their answers. And finally, we could imagine an individual child who shifts their ground depending on the story context or indeed on the particular process that they're um, being invited to think about. So you'll see on, in the next slide, again, these two age groups, seven-year-olds and 11-year-olds, but I'm going to show you the proportion of children falling into these three categories. So here are the findings. So you can see that the seven-year-olds, as we might have suspected from the earlier figure, approach death from a predominantly biological perspective. On the other hand, if you look at that red bar we do see some proportion, about 30% of those seven-year-olds, who are mixing it, who go backwards and forwards, so to speak, between the biological and the religious, and a small proportion who are consistently religious. Now, if we turn to the 11-year-olds, we might have imagined that the consistently religious bar, the white bar, would be the one showing the most sharp increase between the younger children and the older children. That's not the case, as you see. What we do see is a decline in consistently biological responding and an increase 
in this mixed pattern of responding, where the child, depending upon the particular question we've asked, is inclined to offer a biological account or a religious account. More generally, I would say, and these data have fitted into other data, it looks as if children by the age of late uh, middle childhood, so to speak, have arrived at these two accounts. They don't necessarily think of themselves, think of the two accounts as competitors with each other. They think of them as compatible with each other. But it's also true, and this is going a little bit beyond the data, but I think it's very plausible, that the starting point for young children is the biological. So they arrive at this biological account, of which, as I said earlier, um, by seven or eight, they realize is a universal account and therefore applies to themselves. And it may be that that's the foundation, ultimately, this biological account, for their increasing appreciation of the message that is offered by religion, so to speak, which, after all, in some sense, presupposes the biological account but then denies it, which says death is not the end. So there's a sense in which, from our point of view, um, we are seeing some, a somewhat paradoxical conceptual development here where conclusions that the child has arrived at from a relatively objective point of view are going to be put aside or set aside in part by virtue of religious teaching. So there's a quick summary of what I've just reported to you. And as I've emphasized, as children get older, this mixed stance is the one that dominates. I'm going to give you a very quick taste of uh, Rita's talk by showing you a map of Madagascar. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to show you a picture of her field site. She will tell you what happens when you go to Madagascar and you repeat um, this kind of interview uh, with children and with adults, bearing in mind that in Madagascar we're not talking about a Christian culture. We're talking about a culture which believes in the existence of the ancestors. So I'm going to move on quickly instead to Tana Vanuatu, uh, as you can see, um, off the east coast of Australia. And in particular, this island of Tana is one where uh, my colleagues in Austin, led by Christine Lagarde, have been doing these kinds of interviews with children and indeed with adults um, in Tana. Okay, they took essentially the design study, the, stu the study design that I described a moment ago, to Vanuatu, but they also tested adults in Austin, Texas. And the basic question was the extent to which we would find a distinctive pattern, um, particularly in Vanuatu, uh, or whether we would replicate the basic pattern we'd seen in Spain. One, it seems like a minor methodological point, but I think it's of greater significance. In this particular study, each participant was only presented with one story, not with two stories. So you could argue, looking back at the results we got in Spain, that the reason why children showed this duality, this coexistence of two accounts, was precisely because the two children had been presented with two different narratives about death. In this study, then, each participant only got one story, and we'll see if, nonetheless, we get this pattern of um, mixed responding. So that's the basic question. And I'm going to show you now the results that we got when we presented a story with afterlife cues. 
similar to the one that I mentioned a moment ago with respect to Madrid in Spain, but with certain cultural adjustments given, given, the, given the culture. The two cultures, I should say. So here are the findings. Pretty straightforward, as you can see. In both places, we see that the consistently biological is in the minority. In both places, we do see some uh, individuals who offer consistently religious responding. But the very clear result is this prevalence of mixed, of a mixed stance or mixed responding, both in the United States and in Vanuatu. So that leads me to then some overall conclusions. It looks as if from our data, and actually that's echoed um, not just in Spain, but also in Madagascar, that young children don't really um, pay much heed to the religious narrative which is available in their culture. They come to an understanding of death in biological terms, and more probing interviews than those I've presented to you today suggest, as I mentioned earlier, that this is part of a theory in the sense that the children also can invoke various unobservable bodily organs and realize that the body is coherent or has to work coherently um, for life to continue. And when life stops, you see a termination of most processes. So children have established that notion um, by around seven or eight years of age. As that theory or account is consolidated, it seems as if they become more receptive to the existing theological, supernatural, or religious account that exists in their culture. And that, but, but having said that, it's not as if that religious stance leads them to forget or suppress what they know about biology. So what you see among large numbers of people in all of these populations is a tendency to oscillate between the two accounts. And to the best of our uh, knowledge, um, these two accounts are not perceived to be in conflict with one another. And I think Rita will present you with more ethnographic evidence um, this afternoon that indeed people move rather smoothly from one account to the other. Now let me just try to say one or two words about the broader implications then of these developmental findings for more comparative approach that we uh, will be reviewing in the course of today. So these developmental findings may or may not point to what happened in the course of human history, and they may or may not point to um, ideas that we can bring to primatology in particular. Could it be that primates have some minimal biological understanding, and should we assume that um, the religious notion, of course, would ultimately, in the human species, build on that biological notion, which is already uh, hinted at um, in our close cousins. Let me stop there. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.